Hey everyone, welcome back to the Not So Rare podcast. This is Taylor Lewis and I'm with Liz Bovey today. We're going to be giving an update of a recent uh, appointment I had with my oncologist going over my treatment and um, plan of care since some things have changed recently. Uh, before going into that, Liz, you just want to give a hello? Hi everyone, thanks for listening today. Yeah, so I recently went back to my doctor in Cincy, and um, it was a very productive, but uh, a little bit of a stressful appointment for sure. So a few things that came from it, I had to stop my Zomata infusions. To be quite honest, I can't remember if I've really gone into why I had to stop those on the podcast, or even if I have stopped those on the podcast, I'm not sure. But I can't get those anymore. Um, With our medication uh, being, you know, not fully approved when I started it, there's a lot that's been unknown about it and a lot that hasn't come out as side effects that many, many, many of us are experiencing. And so part of it was that while taking this bisphosphonate of the Zomata, I was developing osteonecrosis in my jaw and was having a lot of pain from that. It can be a very, very rare side effect in the fine print of my medication. So Liz, you're going to say something. Yeah, I was going to say, and it's, it's interesting being a patient going through this. Um, I think before I was on a medicine where I was one of the first people on it, I I kind of just sort of assumed that these trial and error type things kind of happen in the clinical trials, but that isn't always the case. And sometimes as patients, the more we interact, sometimes we even come to our doctors with some of this information because it's not like there's a there's a form that all the doctors go to and say, hey, I have patients that have this or I have patients that have that. Sometimes we're the ones that are even bringing it to our doctors. That is so accurate. And my doctor has said that to me too, right? Like they can read stuff online all the time, but until patients come to them experiencing certain things, that's not necessarily what they think is going to happen. And no way did she probably think I would develop this osteonecrosis because it's an extremely rare side effect of our rare disease (laughs) interaction. (laughs) It's not funny, but I literally sent Taylor a meme this week of like a doctor and a patient saying this this side effect only happens in one percent of the patients. Well, inevitably, either Taylor or myself or both of us will get that side effect because we're just the unlucky ones that are in that one percent that just get everything. Yeah, and what sucks about that is they were really effective for my bone pain. I was getting a lot of relief from the Zomata infusions coupled with my Alpelosim. And so when I'm now not getting that, my bone pain has increased pretty significantly. So it caused us to think, okay, if the Alpelosim isn't fully working for the bone pain, I'm on a higher dose than many. Why is it not working? So We came to the conclusion we're looking into some further genetic testing because um, from my understanding, it may be possible that I carry a P10 mutation. My family on my mother's side has a lot of cancers and uh, particularly like breast, colon, and thyroid. So with that being 
kind of concluded from family history and me having a lymphatic malformation, my doctor wanted to screen for that, see where things are at. And, um, if that does come back positive, it's really not going to change my next steps of treatment because I think we both know what it is I need and that's going to be dual therapy. So I will be going back on serolimus with alpelosib and, um, we're thinking we can reduce my doses a little bit so that it won't be toxic on my body taking both of them at once. I think from my perspective, what makes me anxious is just that nobody's doing this yet. But I also know like it's what I need to be productive because like I talked with my doctor and I said, you know, should I just like, you know, ride out the pain? I have tramadol prescribed for pain. I have Tylenol like do I take those, be kind of miserable, right? Like I stop my day at a certain time because of my pain or like try this other route. And she's not ready to just have me take pain meds because this is potentially going to be the rest of my life that I deal with this pain. We really can't do too much from it in terms of like, you can't reverse the damage that's done. You can try and make things better in certain situations, but I'm going to continue growing holes in my bones. That's just the nature of our disease. And so I'm hoping with kind of this dual treatment that will be blocking both pathways that I'm needing um, because the way the science works is that serolimus is a little bit lower down on the blocked mutation so that it covers multiple mutations versus the alpelosib is what we think is responsible for my GLA mutation. And it's just, it was kind of a lot. Um, I, I called Liz on the way home <clears throat> and every time after these appointments, I swear I sleep so long. I just knock out the next day. Like I'm exhausted emotionally from driving, like a little bit of everything. At least with this treatment plan, you you want, you know what to expect with zero. Like you, you lived through zero. You know what to expect. Yeah, we don't know what the what the combination of the two is going to do, but at least it's not something totally new and foreign to you. Like, I think for me, that will at least give me a little bit of comfort. Like, that anxiety of what's going to happen, just because you you know what those side effects are. Yeah, and that's what's made us comfortable with doing this because we talked about trametinib and alpelosib together, but that can be really toxic because. That's introducing a whole new med to me versus we're going to be introducing serolimus, which my girl serolimus and I go way back. So like I know her. <laughs> and so with her and the medication I've been on, it, I think my body will do a bit better versus trying this trametinib with alpelosib, which are both pretty strong medications that are also we don't know a whole lot about long term quite yet the way we do serolimus because of the long-standing use it had with kidney transplants. And I think for myself, what just worries me about it is like I'm going back to being pretty immune compromised again doing this. That's, that's like the hard thing to think about, especially in a post-COVID, I don't know if we use that term, but I use the term post-COVID society or maybe even just a COVID society. I think the past three years have taught us 
to appreciate immunity, which taught us to appreciate our immune system. So like to doing something that potentially can cause that to be less of what it currently is, is a scary thought. Yeah. And something I found since like we're transitioning back to a place where we're not as cautious anymore, right? COVID's being managed way better. I'm not wearing a mask when I go many places, just like in hospital settings, or if you know, I'm around somebody that may be sick. But for me, even though I'm taking less precautions and approaching it in a way of like, we're now kind of at a place where it is what it is, I don't think I'll ever not be bothered by it. And I think that something the general public really takes for granted is like how devastating and detrimental that was to not only my health, but many people's health. Like that completely changed my treatment. It took a good year out of me to adjust to a new medication, a new way of living. And like it shook things up for me. So I think it's like kind of hard for me to hear people talk about it so lightly because I don't feel like they understand it from our perspective of like, that's not good. I think because we've lived through that, we we know the trauma that comes with that. We know the difficulty of getting doctor's appointments. We know the difficulty of getting treatment. We we understand how things change. So I think that it's also led me to like want to make sure I always have extra medication in case something happens or have a couple backup plans or try to be very cautious if anyone around me is coughing or anything, just because I'm so worried about going back to what it was two and a half years ago. Yeah. Another thing too, I feel like our emergency rooms are just so impacted now that when I had about a year ago, when I got a, um, like a kidney infection, I was stuck in the ER for eight hours without even seeing a doctor. And that for me, I know for a lot of people, right? Like for anybody who's not feeling good, that's a long time, but I couldn't wait that long. I had to leave at one point because I was so exhausted. I felt more sick going than I did going home, calling my doctor and getting on like a serious antibiotic dose and just kicking it out because it was awful. Yeah. I remember, wow. It's been like six months since I was in the ER, which is great. Um, but I remember going in the ER like this past summer and, and I actually thought that I was getting into a room fast and they're like, oh, so, you, so you're going to go back out to the living room. Like we just went through my whole health history. You, you just went through all the medication I'm on. Does that make sense for me to go back out there with people coughing near me? They're like, honestly, no, it doesn't, but we don't have anywhere else for you to go. So it's not even that they're screening us like they would screen normally and be like, oh, you need to wait some time. There's people ahead of you. We're still kind of towards the top of that list, but they don't have a way to treat us. Um, So I think that that's also the scary part. Like I dread going to the ER because I know that I'm just going to be stuck there and feel terrible the whole time I'm there. Yeah. Last Christmas. So I guess it hasn't been a year since I've been to the ER. For some reason, like I like to think it's a long time ago, but maybe like eight months because before that it was Christmas and I was at the ER last year on Christmas day, like an idiot, because my husband got me a brand new set of kitchen knives and I decided cutting the fudge was a good idea with one of them. And it was cold fudge that was in the fridge. So it was really hard. My hand slipped and I sliced my hand open 
And I ended up getting stitches for that. And when I went there, the whole emergency room just sounded like breathing COVID. Like it was just like rough in there. I felt so bad for a lot of these people, just like you could tell so sick. And my dad came with me and they let me, since I was immune compromised, go into like a little waiting room by myself, which was like, I feel like unheard of at certain hospitals. So they were really good to me, but I ended up getting COVID three days later after being there. So that was my second time getting it. But my dad came with me and the nurse is like, sir, go sit in the car. I was like, cause I kept saying, dad, you get out of here. Like don't chance getting sick. And I kept saying that. And he was like, no, I'm just going to say, and the nurse was like, you need to leave or else like you will get this. Like, it's not good in here. Um, so just kind of like thinking about that just a year ago, you know, it was kind of wild. I was off in the same sort of conference room, but when I went to look, it was filled with people. And I was like, okay, I guess these other people feel the same way as I do. I'm going to go back and I'm going to sit right next to the door because at least I'll have fresh air coming in every day. Ugh, yeah. Yeah. I do feel better. Like, I mean, I'm very pro vaccine. I know it's very controversial, but as like somebody who's immune compromised, like, and there's a vaccine, we're like, yay. <laughs> like, it's something that I feel like we should all be grateful for. We waited so long for one, but that's for another day to talk about. Um, Kind of going back a little bit to my appointment though. So a lot of good steps came from it. I'm going to be, like I said, doing the genetic testing. I'm also going to be doing um, some blood draws for uh, bone density to see where things are at there. And then oddly enough, I had the weirdest results from my fertility testing that I think are so interesting to talk about. So for the past year, I've had one period And I've been having menopause symptoms like hot flashes, chills, like insomnia, just generally like getting all of those. And I haven't had a period in quite a while in my labs. I don't know what to take of them yet, but what's odd is my um, anti-malarian hormone, which basically checks my ovarian reserves, has like quadrupled in the last year, which makes no sense to me because I didn't think that's something that would ever increase. But I'm wondering, like, is it because I'm on a lower dose? But then again, my fertility levels show that I'm not producing eggs. So just in case you are new to us, um, Taylor is in her mid to late 20s. I'm 28. I'm not that old. Yeah, no, she's not old at all. Um, when she had her AMH done about a year ago, it was probably about the appropriate age for someone that was in their late 40s, early 50s. She had it done now, and yeah, it's it's a little bit low for her age, but it's still a decently decent number. Like it's so strange that it went up. Like I was trying to look up with it, look this up online and yeah, I've seen a couple instances where people are talking about it went up a little bit, but I've never heard it jump that fast. It's just odd. It makes me wonder if one of the two tests was wrong. Like if, if it was either the first test or the second test, if something happened and one of them was wrong, because it just seems so weird that it jumped that high. And I think what's also weird is like the confirmation of like, I'm not ovulating at all. 
Like I'm not producing any eggs for my level. So it's confusing to me that literally a year ago, um, just for like context, I was at like a 0.58. This week I'm at like a 2.4 something, right? I think that's what it was. I'm like, that is just unheard of. I went from like 50 to like borderline low 60s, like you're done, you're done to now like functioning on the lower end, but still showing an ovarian reserve. I'm lost. And I bet my AMH was at home. I'd be super happy right now. I don't understand it. Like it it makes no sense. Um I just wonder if one of the tests was wrong. It got messed up somehow. Yeah, I think it could be worth repeating. I don't think it would hurt because I'm like, I'm still not menstruating and I'm still feeling like I'm in menopause, but it's not showing. It's like they're contradicting each other. So I don't know. More to be continued with that. All I know is I don't feel very fertile. Nothing's going on down there. I'm not even cramping in the least. So a little alarming, but also like I'm at a point now. I'm not using my eggs, so I can be the old lady that my body thinks I am. I apologize to all the guys who listen to our podcast. We probably talk about this a little too much. Taylor and I literally get excited when we have cramps because we're like, oh, good, something's happening. Yeah, my last and only period of this year was when Liz and I were together. That was cool. She must have brought it out in me, like the women vibes, because maybe I'm just around my husband too much, but the estrogen just, yeah. It was bizarre. So Taylor, I I know that we just talked through that you had quite the appointment. Like it, when we say quite the appointment, her appointment was like two hours long, which is unheard of for any doctor's appointment. Um, how are you feeling now after you've had some time? It's been like half a week or so since that appointment. How are you feeling processing it? So what I will say... Um, is I found myself needing, sometimes I feel like I need a little space from healthcare and it's not like I'm mismanaging my healthcare. I'm still taking my medicine. I'm still staying, doing what I need to do, but I find myself spacing out my appointments sometimes when like I find myself emotionally needing a little break. And I feel like my past, because I had therapy the day before I went, and I think that was really helpful because I was addressing issues that I haven't wanted to talk about, like the fertility issues and menstruation with my therapist and like my concerns of like a dual therapy, but knowing in the back of my mind that that's my next step. And sometimes I feel like it takes that that piece of acceptance and like talking about it with somebody before you actually approach it in a healthcare setting, the same way Liz and I talk about everything too, like that helps significantly too. But sometimes I feel like I need a minute to step back before going into the office because one, I don't want to waste her time. And two, I, at the end of the day, know in myself that I make my decisions of my healthcare they can give me, you know, any recommendation. And typically I go with it, but I do like to research and I do like to take my time of understanding like, is this going to benefit me long term? Because I am only 28. And that is truly a thought that I'm constantly thinking of is like, I have a whole lot of life to live. 
And I want to make sure like I'm setting myself up in a way where I'm not causing long-term damage to myself. That's not out of my control. I know my body's already doing its thing, but if I can preserve things as long as I can, that's what I try to do. It's interesting that we always come back to control. I think there's so much that we want to control and you really can't control what your body's doing. You can't control what the doctors are really telling you because they're giving you their opinions, but you can control your reaction to all of that. You can control how you, what you do with that. And I think the fact that you take time and try to process it, don't just jump in. You're, you're really making sure that you're prepared for it is something that I think is really good for our listeners to, to think about as they're approaching some of these difficult appointments. And I think like a big part of it was getting off of serolimus felt like I was advancing my medical journey and getting off of it felt like I was getting somewhere. So I'm trying not to look at it now as a step back because it's really not. I'm reintroducing it to block both pathways, but I knew that was something I need to think about within myself too of like, I know I don't feel good on serolimus and that's kind of a something I'm going to have to process and kind of get through is understanding like trying to find that balance again, right? Like we know it's a delicate dance to find something that helps our symptoms. And so I think I'm just going to try and approach it with some patience, even though it's going to feel out of my control. And that that is what it is. And I think the good news is, is you're not going to be going on as high of a dose as you were on before. So I think that maybe because your body knows knows the medicine, maybe it won't react as as much as it was when you were on it before, especially if it's on a lower dose. I think it's also probably something that's worth asking if you could slowly bring it back into your system too. I know when I went on it, like my body reacted really quickly. But even like kind of slowly building up to where you want to be might be good for you to get used to it again. And I think what's dumb is... <laughs> I shouldn't say it's dumb because I should give myself a little more credit than that. But like where my mind goes sometimes is like the cosmetic part of things where when she was like, we're going to get you back on serolimus. All I could think of in that moment was like, oh, God, the acne serolimus gives me like and I know that's so silly when I like know that it'll be helping other ways, but it's like. Why do all of these medications cosmetically do all these things? Like, I don't want to lose my hair again. I don't want to get acne again. Like, can't I just like be me, you know, and be healthy? But it's like, that's just part of it. And it is what it is going to be getting a little more proactive in my life. Literally and the medication proactive. So and that comes back to as patients, there are different things that we are concerned about that, yeah, they're important from a clinical perspective, but not nearly as important as some other things. I know Taylor and I constantly are talking about our hair. I was sending her a picture because my eyelashes are falling out again because I decided I would take a break from the eyelash serum. And that was stupid of me because now I don't have eyelashes in my left eye. So I think it's something that like, we're very conscious of these things because we look in the mirror and that's what we see. And I think it's important as patients to voice those concerns because it's it's more that 
the mental health side of it is also part of your health. And so having concerns about your appearance from these medications really does need to be a concern of your doctors as well. I think too, it like goes back to that piece of like you and I being professional and you and I like presenting away or even just like us enjoying doing our makeup in the morning, right? Like the things that we find in self-care, like I love doing my makeup. Like I find it very therapeutic. I take my time in the morning. It's relaxing to me. And it's like sometimes like there, it's just like a reminder in the mirror of like your health. Like, I know that sounds weird, but it's like me doing my makeup and seeing acne randomly pop up. It's like, I don't know. I I don't like it. Well, fingers crossed the acne doesn't come back. Um, I, I actually never got acne from Sierra. I don't know if it's because I was on too low of a dose or if it was because I was too old to get the acne. Maybe maybe another another year will help you and it won't be bad. Yeah, I got to hit those 30s and then maybe, <laughs> maybe it'll go away. But I still like my skin has its moments. I know my hormones definitely do it. But I think this time around, like I'm going to be on a way lower dose. I was on a very high dose of serolimus looking back. I was taking eight milligrams a day where I think like my max will be four, like two and two. Yeah, it's definitely been a high dose. I think that, I don't know if I ended at two and a half or three. I don't really remember. I really did, like end up cutting pills at one point because the, the pills weren't the right size, but I don't remember where I ended. But I think I made it up to four. Four seems like a lot. Yeah. So... All in all, it was a very successful appointment, one that um, has been in the works. I think sometimes, obviously, follow up on your care and do what you need to do. But I also think there's part of it, like, for our mental health and emotional health, it's okay to step back and push it out a little bit if we're feeling like that's what we need. Like, it was not detrimental to my health. I was still functioning, taking my medicine and skipping, you know taken two weeks. Um, and I think like that's what was needed for me. And I'm kind of glad that I did it. And, um, yeah, I'm hopeful about things moving forward. So we'll keep you updated as Taylor goes through this new journey. It's probably going to be a couple of months before it starts. So if you don't hear about it for, for a little while, it's because we haven't gotten there yet, but we'll keep you posted on how that goes. Um, So thank you all for listening. This has been the Not So Rare Podcast.